Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. And he, that is Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Amen. Let's pray together. Our almighty, infinite Father, faithfully loving your own, as we have opened your word, here in our weakness you find us. And we ask that by your Spirit, you would strengthen us and encourage us and speak to us that we might live by faith, pursuing Christ with all of our hearts. For your glory and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we come this morning to this parable that Jesus gives to teach us about prayer. But it's important to notice that he's not just talking about prayer in a generic sense, but that he's, uh, th- this instruction is very specific to the broader context of this passage, namely what just came before. It's connected. If you were here last Sunday, you recall how back in chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus began to speak to his disciples about his return. That one day the day will come when the Son of Man will appear in the sky for the world to see. And that his unveiled glory will be revealed, spanning the whole sky like flashing lightning as he returns to this world to consummate all of the promises of his kingdom. At which point, our faith will become sight and our hope will be realized in the immediate presence of Christ on earth once again and forever. And so we saw how last week Jesus was calling his people in the meantime then to live in light of that coming day, anticipating, hoping, and yearning for his return. Even as verse 8 of our passage in chapter 18 says that when the Son of Man comes, will he find such faith on earth? And he's calling us to live not like the people of Noah's day or Lot's day who were so preoccupied with worldly things, but to be a people whose hearts are set upon heaven waiting for and hastening the day of his coming now perhaps in hearing all of this last sunday you said amen well maybe not out loud i guess we don't do that here you know it's okay you can if you want to but at the very least maybe in your heart you said amen and you were energized and you were resolved to set your mind upon heavenly things and your heart was ignited to live for uh, eternal realities yet to come and that are surely to come And so you went home on Sunday determined in your devotion to Christ and Monday came and well, maybe Monday was just fine because you had enough momentum that you were riding off from Sunday, but then Tuesday came. It's always a Tuesdays. And it's like you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Your heart felt dull of spirit. Maybe even something so simple as being in the word and communing with God felt 
difficult. You want to, but it's hard to. Perhaps it was already by Tuesday that the influence of worldly thinking and living had caught up to you. Whether that be because of a continued struggle against a certain besetting sin, or simply finding yourself so easily preoccupied with all of your busyness and responsibilities and earthly anxieties, and so you're dismayed at how quickly you've lost sight of the truth that you heard and loved last Sunday. Or maybe something happened, some trial or thorn in the flesh weighing you down, discouraging you in whatever shape or form. And well, after all, Jesus promised such tribulation. Remember in 20, verse 22 of chapter 17 that the days are coming when you will desire, you will long to see the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. It will be a struggle. Suffice to say, it's readily apparent that the life of devotion to Christ is not easy. That is the realistic truth. This tension of living in the already of belonging to him, a citizen of his eternal kingdom, but still in the not yet, it's hard. It's a struggle living in the waiting and persevering in faithfulness until the end. And Jesus, knowing this, so realistically knowing this, being so acquainted himself with human frailty, having taken on human nature himself, he proceeds to tell his disciples this parable, verse 1, to the effect that, so that they know that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. To remind them of how, how vital it is to always be praying that they might not be disheartened or discouraged, but be strengthened to finish the race. You see, I think that many of us read this verse and we assume at first glance that Jesus is talking about how we should always be praying, the obligation of it, and that we must not lose heart in following through on this obligation and this commitment to prayer. Now, that's not a wrong statement. We ought to be committed to be prayerful. But what Jesus is getting across is more nuanced than that. Because he told his disciples this parable to convey their need to always be praying. It's not just duty, but it's their necessity. So that by praying, they might not lose motivation in living the life of faith and pursuing Christ and not falling into the slumber of this world. In other words, prayer is our lifeblood. And most importantly, we must be praying regularly for our own souls, for God to help us stay faithful to Him. We cannot do anything apart from Him. We can't even worship Him and honor Him apart from His enabling power to do so. That's how weak we really are. And so look, it's great to be praying for the needs of our loved ones, to, to be praying for the needs of those who are sick or even our own bodily health and all that stuff, all the, all, all the temporal needs that we have. But here we see how necessary it is to be regularly praying for our spiritual perseverance. You know, so often we're so uh, caught up with the thought of needing to persevere in prayer, as in seeing it as a spiritual discipline in a vacuum to persevere in that we lose sight of the fact that God has really called us to persevere through prayer. That it is by the means of prayer that we grow to acknowledge our spiritual weakness to Him and entrust ourselves to His power and sufficiency in causing us to persevere 
unto the end. And that's what this parable is, is about. It, it, it's, it's designed to show this gospel power, the, the reassurance of the final vindication of the saints. It's a confirmation of the promise that God will uphold and defend His people unto the very end. And that is what must anchor our prayers, resting in His promise and in His faithfulness, which is what imparts to us the spiritual strength to press on. And this is revealed in this parable by way of contrast. As we're introduced in verse 2, Jesus said that in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Well, that's a great profile to have. He neither feared God, meaning he was a godless judge. He was corrupt. He was crooked. No fear of God. And so he ruled according to what was right in his own depraved eyes. He was evil. And... He didn't respect man, meaning he had no regard for people in his jurisdiction. He was self-serving. And so in every sense, he was evil and unjust. No love for God, no love for others, the epitome of rebellion against the law of God. And so in this city was this wicked, selfish judge ruling the courts. And then we find out in verse 3 that there was a widow in that same city over which he ruled who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, why was she saying this? Well, we're not giving it explicit uh, details, but we can make a pretty good guess, given that widows were some of the most vulnerable people in society during Jesus' day, frequently abused and taken advantage of, even throughout the Old Testament, actually. Because one of the most common ways they were abused was in the sense of being a legal victim especially being extorted of their property after their husband died. In ancient Israel, land and family estate was passed down from father to son. And if a widow had no son, she would have been in a very vulnerable position, which would have required special legal protection and assistance to retain her rights to the house, land, and other assets. And in such a time of loss and desperate need of legal aid, well, she would have turned to the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, the experts of the law to adjudicate the matter and serve as executors of the family estate. But unbeknownst to her, the widow would have been walking into a lion's den because these Pharisees, these scribes, lawyers, they ate them alive. They were swindlers who cheated widows out of their property there are all kinds of sleazy lawyer tactics. And imagine this widow goes to see one Pharisee seeking help, and he says, okay, well, but the fee is going to be 20%. And she says, oh, okay, that's a little bit high, but I guess I just really need help. 80% is not too bad for me to uh, retain. And then looking into her estate, he starts to claim, whoa, well, this is very complicated. I, I need others to weigh in. And then pretty soon he's got four other of his Pharisee buddies coming in and each taking a 20% cut of their own. And by the time it's all done... Their pockets are filled, the house is liquidated, and she has nothing. Now, whether or not this is exactly how such transactions went, it's just kind of my imagination, but isn't this the, the, the spirit of exactly what Jesus says later in chapter 20, verse 47, as he says, Beware of scribes who pretended to be holy, along with the Pharisees and lawyers. They pretend to be holy, but what do they do? They devour widows' houses. And earlier in chapter 11, Jesus said, Woe to you, Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside 
I see it all. You are full of greed and wickedness. They were preying on grieving widows for the love of money. Effectively, they were coming to steal, kill, and destroy, just just like their father, the devil, as Jesus said in John chapter 8. This is the kind of evil that was often done to widows, and probably no different for the widow in this parable. And so, what she needs is she needs justice to be done for her. For her to be vindicated by the authority of a judge. For someone to come to her defense and help. And so she keeps going and pleading with this unrighteous judge because he's the only guy in town who rules over a city, who has the authority to do anything about it. And of course, to no surprise, verse 4, it says that for a while, he refused. Simply because he didn't want to. Because he was wicked. He didn't care about her. He was a crooked, corrupt judge himself and had no regard for others. But even so, she kept coming to him over and over and over again, following him to that restaurant, trailing him at the grocery store, just banging on his door at his porch, pleading him to hear her case. And finally, well, he couldn't stand it anymore. And so verse 4, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, although I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Because of her sheer annoying persistence, this judge finally gave in and rendered the justice she was seeking. Now, what is the point of this parable? Well, here's what it's not. It's not a direct comparison of how we are to pray to God. As though we must frantically beg and pester God in order to get him to listen. As if he were like this wicked judge. To think that way is to miss the point because this parable is not an analogy of comparison. But an analogy of the starkest contrast. That God is not like this wicked unrighteous judge. He is not one who is unwilling to come to the defense of those who call out to him. Rather, this parable is a how much more kind of an argument. Verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And if he says that, verse 7, then will not God, how much more God, the righteous judge, the loving father, the one who so regards sinful man that he showed us mercy even at the cost of his son, how much more will he then give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? If even so wicked a judge is willing at some point to carry out justice, how much more God to those whom he loves? You see, there is no virtue in being a frenetic prayer. You know what I mean? One who is always hurling requests over and over at God as if the button is broken and by mashing it repeatedly, he might finally listen for a change. Now that's actually a sign that you don't trust him to hear. Rather, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. He said, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard. Why? For their many words. But do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need 
before you even ask Him. There is great comfort in that, isn't there? This should guide the manner in which we pray. Not twisting God's arms with the faint hope that He might listen, but resting in His arms that are already stretched out to meet our needs. And so in the context of this parable, the message is this, your Father knows all of your needs, all of your weaknesses, all of your struggles and hardships in persevering by faith. And so we are to pray with peace and confidence. In what? In God, most assuredly giving justice to His elect. Now what does this mean? It means that God will see to it that His beloved people are vindicated in their faith. Now there is tremendous comfort in this because it implies that He will make sure that they reach that day of vindication. The day when faith will become sight and it will be shown that our faith was not in vain but worth it. That He will carry us to the end and not let one of these be lost. Church, do not underestimate the power of such a precious promise. I mean, aren't there days where we feel just so weary from all of the sojourning, all of the living, trying to live faithfully, and so beat up from all of the battling, so bruised from all of the enduring and the weathering of storm after storm, Sometimes it just feels like we want to throw in the towel. But it's in those days that the thing that keeps us going is the guarantee that we are His forever. That's our sealed destiny. It's who we are in Christ. Listen, you might be weary, but if you're in Christ, you're a weary Christian. If you're struggling, you're a struggling Christian in Christ. You might be beat up, but you are beat up in Christ. Nothing can rend that union. And that's why Jesus so intentionally here calls us His elect. Those whom God has set His love upon before the foundation of the world, before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, to show how truly unconditional is the love of God in Christ Jesus. That It is not on the basis of what we do, what we have done, what we haven't done, what we will do, but entirely on the basis of Himself that God loves us because He loves us. The end. See, the doctrine of election is the most beautiful truth that reveals how beloved the Christian is by God. And it is the most misunderstood doctrine whereby some think that it robs them of the assurance of salvation when it couldn't be further from the truth. That it's meant to seal the assurance of salvation in the believer. It is a truth that can only be understood and treasured in hindsight by the believer who has already come to Christ. And now they see, ah, God is the one who took me in, who took me to Himself, and even united me to Himself. And nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not even me! 
It is a truth so precious. Only the child of God can understand it because it is a communication of the Father's love. The non-believer has no business thinking about the doctrine of election because it's a relational truth of God's infinite eternal love conveyed to those who belong to Him by faith. Listen, if you're here and you're not a believer, you cannot understand the glory of God's unconditional election because right now, as it is, you have no relationship with Him yet. But you can. You can know God. You can be known by Him. You can belong to Him, be loved by Him by turning to Jesus Christ by faith. He is the love of God incarnate who came down to save sinners by laying down His life for them and paying for the punishment of sin on the cross. And He rose from the dead and now calls sinners to simply confess their sin to Him and trust Him to forgive them all of, of all their sin based on what He has already done and accomplished on the cross. And look, if you put your trust in Him, He will receive you as His own. And listen, hear this now you will then prove to be His elect. You will demonstrate that you are, that you have been eternally beloved by Him by coming to Him and placing your trust in Him. You see, it is a hindsight truth to rejoice in. And Christian, God has therefore revealed this to you now for your assurance and daily strength. It's not meant for you to question, oh my goodness, I'm a Christian, but am I, am I chosen or not? Are you kidding me? Are you, if you're in Christ, you are chosen. That's what it means to be in Christ, to be His elect. It's so that you might know better each day that you belong to Him forever, that you are beloved by Him, and as such, because you belong to Him, that you would know how much He knows and sees you through every single step and struggle in your pilgrim's progress. And to know that every step that you take is stirring the intensity of His love towards you and His great willingness to come and comfort you finally and eternally forever and consummate all of His promises to you. Notice verse 7 and 8. It says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, let's be honest. In reading this verse, we almost want to interject. As it says, will he delay long over them? And we want to say, uh, yeah, isn't he? I mean, it's been 2,000 years and counting. And we're still waiting for him. And he says, well, he will give justice to them speedily. And we want to say, well, can it be a little bit speedier? I'm really tired. How much longer? I mean, seriously, what is Jesus talking about? He's not referring to timing. But he's referring to swiftness. From man's perspective, the timing is, we can't understand it. It may suggest that God is slow and languishing, but remember what 2 Peter 3 says. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. 
It may seem like it to us, but for God, who is outside of time, it's all instantaneous. We can't understand this with our finite minds that are confined to this time-space continuum. But what we can understand and what he wants us to understand, which is why he says it all throughout the New Testament, is that he will come swiftly when he does come. That's even the terminology that Jesus uses in Revelation. Surely I am coming soon. The word soon, he's talking about I'm coming swiftly. Now why is that important? Why why do we care that he's going to come fast when he comes? Because it's in context of this parable, in contrast to this wicked judge who cared nothing for this widow and as an expression of his apathy, he was slow and languishing in his vindication. He cared nothing for her. But so unlike that evil judge, God at his appointed time when he comes, he will act swiftly as an expression of his deep love for his people. Have you ever noticed how much the New Testament stresses the speed at which things will happen upon Jesus' return? 1 Corinthians 15.52, the resurrection of dead believers will be in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, believers who remain alive or still alive at Jesus' coming, they will be snatched away to meet him in the air. That's what the word rapture means. By the way, the word rapture says nothing about the timing of it, when it happens, just the mode of it, the manner of it, that he will snatch us when he returns. And this, beloved, is to show how much Christ longs to tend to his people who have been waiting for him. And that all of the years and centuries even of seeming delay was only because he was waiting his appointed time. And that appointed time is so that he might gather more of his elect unto himself and fill his kingdom with sinners like you and me. But as soon as that time comes, the day of the Lord comes, he will not waste a single nanosecond but quickly, hastily come to comfort his people and to consummate their heavenly reward. Which tells us then that God is watching his people very carefully. He is noticing and remembering every step we take in our walk with Christ, every struggle against sin, Every bruise, every wound, every heartache, every sacrifice, every worldly rejection or being disapproved by the people around us for the sake of Christ, every affliction from the accuser, the adversary, the devil. And he is patiently waiting that day when he will come to make all things right, all things new. He hears every cry, day or night, from his people. And though it seems sometimes that he doesn't hear 
those cries are not falling on deaf ears. But every single one of those cries are kindling his swiftness on that day to come to you and to console you forever. Listen, Christian, you think you are patiently enduring? Here we see that God is patiently enduring your suffering, your struggling, your striving more than you can imagine. And He is more eager than you are to see every tear wiped and every wound mended. And church, this is how and why we should pray. Tell Him every sorrow. Tell Him every hardship. Tell Him every fear, every confession, every burden. And as you tell Him, know and believe that His swiftness and His his protectiveness, if you will, is being quickly kindled as He hears your cries. Just as a father hears the voice of his crying child and is moved to run to him and comfort him. And this communication of his love is what will strengthen you and empower your perseverance and thus increase your hunger for the day of his coming. Church, it's hard. Pressing on by faith. By no means is it meant to be easy. Being caught in between two worlds by, by virtue of who we are in Christ, set apart from this world, no longer of the world, but still in the world. You know what that means? The nature of it implies that you and I are living in this perpetual tension, a perpetual stress, if you will, in this present life. It's hard. But understand that God is not calling you to walk as though you were alone. We do think like that often, don't we? That we must bear our pains ourselves, that we must carry every weight ourselves. But see here, beloved, how intimately He abides with you through every single step that He is calling us to live mindful, conscious of His abiding presence and to grow in that holy habit of casting all your cares on Him. That is the spirit of true prayer. And so when the Son of Man comes, may it be to his great delight that he finds in us this childlike faith that has been crying out to him day and night and waiting for his swift return and rescue. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your strength sufficient for us in our weaknesses. We thank you for the certainty of our salvation. And we pray that you would give us the strength to comprehend the power and the efficacy of your love for us. That we might by faith look ahead to the coming day of our vindication. And Lord, while we are living this life, walking and struggling and and persevering, we thank you that you are so closely with us and that you've given to us this sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And in it, we are reminded that this is not a reward for the spiritually strong, but you have intended it to be food for the spiritually weak, all of us 
that by taking it, by taking this visible sign and seal of the gospel, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that we would be reminded and confirmed in our hearts that we belong to him, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his work, of his sacrifice, of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Oh Lord, we ask that you would enable us to receive it by faith and strengthen our faith by it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.